0: chapter 7 this morning and so if you have a Bible go ahead and open up to Matthew 7. Uh, again we are taking a break from the Gospel of Mark um, during the season of Advent and the first Sunday of the new year. Um, we'll, we'll get back in week two of 2018 back into the Gospel of Mark uh, but for this season we are going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 5 6 and 7. Uh, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, probably a, a fairly well-known passage of Scripture for, uh, for many of us, like I said a couple of weeks ago. If it's not, um, then I will again reiterate what a treat uh, to, to, be, to be here for the first time. And so um, we'll be in Matthew chapter 7 today. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, reviewing uh, what we saw two weeks ago and what we would have seen last week had we been here, um, as we look to the love that God gives uh, from Matthew chapter 7, we're continuing to remember the incarnation of Jesus, um, his condescension, and his entrance into his creation, right? We, we've sang and affirmed the truths already this morning that remind us of um, the Son of God's leaving, right? Um leaving this perfect intimate fellowship that he enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit before the ages began, before the foundations of the world, to enter into a broken and rebellious creation in order to redeem us and to bring us back into right relationship with God by way of the cross. And so as we remember the incarnation, as we remember his condescension, as we remember his entrance into his creation. Um, we also uh, we we do all of this with the cross in mind, right? Um, two weeks ago, uh, we began the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, where the Sermon on the Mount begins in the Beatitudes, and we considered. The hope that God provides, that's kind of the theme that we're going with uh, over the course of these these weeks together. The hope that God provides, the, the hope that God gives, right? The peace that, that God provides, the peace that God gives, and then this morning, the love, the love that God provides. We saw the hope that God provides uh, two weeks ago through the approachability of Jesus. We spent a little bit of time, a lot of time actually, looking at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5, in which we see Jesus retreat to the mountain, uh, and we see his followers uh, pursue him and, and sit down there. We talked about the approachability of Jesus, right, and, and the hope of his salvific grace that he speaks into the hearts of sinners, right? We, we said this, that there is hope in Christ, and there is hope through Christ. And if we remember what we saw in the beatitudes we uh, we are able to 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 see right that there is hope for the poor in spirit right for those who are who are poverty stricken of spirit realizing their separation and their brokenness we we realize that there is hope in Christ and then through Christ for those who mourn those who hunger and thirst for righteousness the merciful and the pure of heart and we concluded our time with with a call, right, to, to, to hope in Christ, right, to, to place our hope in Christ for rescuing us, for saving us, for keeping us, for empowering us to live the Christian life. A theme that runs throughout this series that we're going to spend a lot of time discussing this morning as well. As we seek to now disturb the peace that naturally exists between humanity and her sin right that that's what the christian life is an encouragement towards as we look to christ right and we adore christ and we enjoy relationship with christ because of his sacrifice we we desire now that in our lives there would no longer be peace Right between between you and I and our sin, but that that peace would be disrupted. Right, this is what a life of repentance looks like, and so we we're encouraged towards this. Two weeks ago, as we as we looked to the hope that Christ provides us, last week uh, before the great snowpocalypse of uh, 2017, uh, the plan was to come into Mark uh, Matthew, I'm sorry Matthew chapter six, and to unpack the theme of peace and we were going to look at the peace that God provides. The peace that God provides for, for anxious hearts produced through an understanding and embrace of God's provision. We didn't quite make it, did we? <laughs> we didn't make it. We didn't get to see that last week. But, but you can go back and you can look at Matthew chapter 6 and this call to not be anxious. And we can, we can see the peace that God provides, that he calls us into, and then that he speaks into our hearts, right? This week, we're going to look at the love of God displayed in chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look to uh, the love that God displays in chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's informing and empowering our loving other people. And so let's go to, to Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, um, as we, as we uh, see this section in which Jesus addresses judging other people and then um, leads us um, and then, uh, and then leads us into um, what is often referred to as the, the, the golden rule, this call to relationship, intimacy with God, asking and it being given to us. How does that inform the way that we understand this, this call to treat others as we desire to be treated? Well, that's what we're going to see this morning as we pick up in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, beginning in verse 12. And so if you would uh, follow along with me, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone, Jesus says in verse 8, who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, verse 9, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And we come into verse 12. So, Jesus says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter, he says in verse 13, by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Right? The the narrowness, the, the difficulty of the Christian life. Right, it is, it is a narrow road. It's not a wide road. It's not an easy road, but it is, a, it is oftentimes a, a challenging road for God's people. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it, Jesus says, verse 14, are few. Okay, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you for your love that we see displayed here this morning in Matthew chapter 7. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand your, your character, your goodness, your love for us displayed through the sacrifice of the Son, through the cross. Um, and that in, in light of this understanding that you, by your grace and your mercy, bring us into, we pray that we might then seek to apply these principles in our lives, to our lives, in light of the hope that we receive from the first portion of this passage. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. The, the first thing that I want us to look at this morning is the love that God displays in verses 7-7 eleven verses seven through eleven serve as um, as a catapult into this this call to to living the different type of Christian life that we see in verse twelve. This is where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning. Verses seven through eleven, and then into verse twelve. Right, this 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 call uh, to to do unto others um, as as they uh, as we would desire them to, to do unto us. But it begins with an unpacking of the love of God. Let's look together at verse 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, what? Receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now listen to what he says beginning in verse 9. Or which one of you, if he has... Uh, if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, give him a, a serpent less than desirable traits for a good father. yes, verse eleven If you then who are evil now that 's really important we 're going to spend some time addressing why Jesus says this the way that he does in just a few moments, but he says if if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, oh, how much more right? how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him, so what is the emphasis of verses seven through eleven what is being emphasized there 's a lot of details there and we 're going to discuss some of them, but the emphasis in verses seven through eleven finds its home in god 's goodness and in god 's generosity right there's a there 's a build up that takes place in verses seven through 10 that drive us into verse 11 and this issue of sin that contrasts with God's character and, and so I think we have to begin by going back and we have to address just for a moment God's intent in creation and because we're talking about evil we're talking about the evil of humanity within the, this particular portion of this passage upon the backdrop of the father's goodness and we need to understand God's intent in in creation, right? We, we know, based on what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that it is not God's intent in creation that man would, would sin and would rebel from him, that would desire to become God as opposed to offering worship to God. But it is certainly observable that there is now a universal corrupt nature among humanity Right, that produces this capacity for all kinds of evil. Right, Humanity, in light of what we see in Genesis chapter 3, and the rebellion of Adam that has trickled down onto all of us. In light of the truth that we see in Genesis chapter 3, we can say this, that all men, all of humanity, all of creation is corrupt, it is sinful, destructive, and rebellious, to which we say, Merry Christmas, right? Merry Christmas. What Jesus does, though, is he draws here upon the image of God, the Imago day that is found within fallen creatures that produces certain good and moral behaviors by way of Gifts that are given from an earthly father to their children. He, He unpacks for us briefly morally desirable behavior from parents to children here, even now in 2017, right? Such as what? Feeding your children bread as opposed to rocks, right? That's a morally desirable behavior. In verse 11... We see Jesus speaking towards the evil of the human heart. Look at what he says: "If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts, and so he acknowledges here in verse eleven, he acknowledges the the, the opportunity, right, and even the practice of giving good gifts from earthly fathers to their children. But he doesn't he doesn't negate." the evil of the human heart. In fact, he draws it out and uses it to to point towards the goodness of the Father. The good and the observable, right, in a world and within relationships so broken by sin. Jesus here is painting a picture, right? He's painting a, a picture that draws on um, the best way that I can think to, to identify and to discuss this is parental minimalism, right? To, to highlight the extravagant kindness of our Heavenly Father, right? Sense is made of good works being done by evil people. Have you ever struggled with that? Have you ever wrestled with that, right? If we live in a world that is so... Broken and is so destructive and is so rebellious and is so sinful, then why is there any good at all? Like, why is there any good whatsoever? Why is it all not just totally, totally broken in every area, in every facet? Jesus here makes sense of good works done by evil people. But it is the love of God that's emphasized in verses 7 through 11. And so there's this tension, isn't there? Right, there's this tension between understanding the evil, right, that Jesus addresses in verse 11, understanding our sin, and understanding and observing God's love. Our, our sinfulness, our sinfulness, is mentioned explicitly in this passage. And it affects the way that we relate with God and with others, both, both spiritually and spiritually. And interpersonally, doesn't it? The way that we relate and connect with one another. The way that we relate and connect with God. And it's all rooted in the sin of Adam, who questioned the love of God. Who questioned God's love, and Jesus highlights it emphatically here. I love what Martin Luther says as it relates to, to our sin. Sin. What is the root of sin? Listen to what Luther has to say. He says, the sin underneath all our sins, what is it? Right. What is the sin that underlies all sin? There's a common root, and Luther draws our attention to believing a lie. Trusting a lie that the serpent tells, that says that we cannot trust the love and grace of of God and must in turn take matters into our own hands. This was Adam's sin, right? This was Adam's sin in Genesis chapter 3 and this is our sin, questioning the love and grace of God to the point that I think that we can say this. Now this is a massive statement, and I have yet to unpack all of the um, of the different like avenues arms of it. But but I want us to to consider it for just a moment. Sin, at its core, is a failure to trust God's love. Sin, at its core, at its root, is a failure to trust. God's love, perhaps first to trust and to and to believe in its, its existence, right? That there is a God and that He does love. Perhaps that's one stumbling block that we oftentimes fall over. That others fall over to question that: Is God's love real? Like, is it is it actually there? Is it tangible? Is it existent? To to, to question the sufficiency of God's love, right? That, that, that God's love means anything, anything at all. When we know deep down, we know at our, at our heart's heart, we know at our core that it means everything so to question its availability. Can God love me? Can God love me? To question its its practicality, that a loving God changes our lives and our condition, that he changes our present and he changes our future. To question the power of God's love, to question the atonement, to question the sacrifice of Christ, that, that love can save, that the cross is sufficient. And so, when confronted with questions and doubts and struggles such as these, what is most valuable? What is most beneficial for God's people? Well, let me tell you, right? It's it's to go to the Scriptures, to go to the Scriptures, to go to God's Word, and to find in God's Word, God's heart. And so let's allow the scriptures to inform the way that we understand the heart of God as it relates to issues that we have discussed already up until this point. Let's consider Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Paul writes this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died For us, God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This past week, uh, as perhaps some of you know, uh, Pastor, writer R.C. Sproul passed away. And as I was thinking about his passing um, earlier this this week, or later this week, because he actually passed away later in the week, um, I came across a quote, one of my favorite quotes from R.C. And all of of his years of speaking, all of his years of writing, to which he says this. And he speaks towards the consolation of God's love for broken people in light of what we see in passages like Romans chapter 5. He says, to know that God knows everything about me and yet loves me is indeed my ultimate consolation. That God knows that we are broken, thus the Christmas story, thus the biblical narrative, thus the redemptive narrative, thus the scriptures, this story in which God's plan and purpose for redeeming a people Out of a heart of love and a desire for worship is displayed. Paul continues to unpack this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. God, being rich in mercy, get this, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved our salvation rests on the love of God his his plan and his desire his purpose right that his son might enter into the broken creation that we've already talked about up until this point and redeem it by way of laying his life down upon the cross right not that we might clean ourselves up and work our way back into right relationship with God, but out of a heart of love and compassion and generosity. God loves us while we are dead. And he makes us alive by Christ, together with Christ. And it's a great act of grace. We're saved. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. John continues it in a a familiar passage. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that what? That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, faith, right? Faith in Christ shall not perish but have eternal life. There is a theme. There's a theme here. Right? There's a theme here and it's God's It's God's love, and it says to us, based on what we see in Romans chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 2, John chapter 3, here in Matthew chapter 7, it says that God's love is not contingent on our merit. Instead, he moves, and he places his love upon us. He sustains us in the midst of rebellion, and then he lays his affection on us. These verses, and and verses like these, arouse a response within us. Or they ought to, okay? They ought to arouse a response within us. They ought to arouse a certain posture among those who have been made to see their death. Right? Among those who have been made to see their death. Depravity. Brendan Manning says it like this, speaking of God's love and a right response to understanding God's love in light of understanding who we are. He says this, we should be astonished at the goodness of God. Let me say that one more time. <laughs> we should be astonished at the goodness of God of God if we're not if we're not astonished at the goodness of God in light of what we see in passages like these then I would venture to say that we do not yet have a proper understanding of our sin right that we don't yet have a proper understanding our, of our condition if we're not brought to a position of of astonishment at God's goodness he continues on stunned That he should bother to call us by names. And then I love the the, the language that that he uses here because I get a picture. I'm a visual guy. You guys, you're visual people? Any visual people here, right? I get this picture. He calls us by name and as a response, our mouths are wide open at his love. Why? Well, Because we're bewildered right we're, we're bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground it's a it's a scandalous love right it's a it's a generous love love that god has for sinners in christ that informs our understanding of his actions how we approach him and, and process his sovereign power being Played out. We consider this on two levels as we as we as we continue the flow of this passage, and we seek to to understand all of these these things. The love that God extends, the love that God gives. We consider it on a on a salvific level, right? That that God saves us, that He that He rescues us, and then we consider this on a daily living level, and then we consider this on the thread that brings the two um, the two together. In verse 11, it says that God gives good things to those who ask him. One commentator had to say this as it related to Matthew 11, 7 11. God gives good things to his children who ask. So we're continuing to unpack how, how does the love of God made manifest transform the way that we understand our relationship with him. Right, how we communicate to him now, how we, how we go to him. God gives good things to his children who ask. Maybe not the very thing that we ask for in the time and the way that we ask, but always good things. We could all like, uh, like speak towards the validity of that statement, right? Always. They may include some of the hardest experiences of our lives. Just like God led Joseph down into slavery in Egypt. Which is ironic that this is where we are because I read the same story to Judah last night in our Advent reading. And for those of you who know the narrative, we're a little bit behind, so don't judge me. But we're making our way there. Okay, we're, ma- we're making our way there. But, he says, as it relates to, to Joseph and his time in Egypt, it was for a thousand good reasons that would be seen Later. You see, knowing the truth about God, right, understanding his heart, understanding his his generosity and his compassion, his mercy and his grace enables us to trust him, right? It enables us to, to trust him even when we don't understand the circumstances of life. This commentator would go on to say, our Father in heaven is never against those who are in Jesus Christ. That's an incredible statement, <laughs> right? Um, and it's, it's reaffirming, and it's hopeful um, for, for many of God's people because um, it, it's a struggle, right? The Christian life is a struggle, and how we process difficulty and pain and suffering in light of being followers of Jesus um, is oftentimes shaky for us, right? We ask questions, and we get confused um, but we are reminded that our Father always um, is always for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has only mercy in his heart for us, not ease, but always mercy. All his wrath was indeed removed by the ransom that Jesus paid and the blood that he should. And so if we ever question, if we ever question the heart of God as we see this this correlation and this tension and this contrast between a heavenly father and an earthly father here in verses 7 through 11, let us gaze upon the cross. Right? If we ever question the heart of God, right? if we ever question the love of God, let us gaze upon the cross where in which we see the single greatest act of of love out of a heart of love that the world has ever known and in light of what this commentator has to say about what we see in verse 11 and the gifts that are given from our heavenly father to his children we can say this that the father can give you and I good things because Christ deserving only good takes that which is eternally for you and I on. Un- desirable God's wrath towards sin. Not only do we see the love that God displays but we see the transforming effect of God's love and there's a lot of response here okay this is a lot of application this is a lot of, of response. Uh, as we begin this, this second part. In verses 7 through 11, drawn out for us, is the scandalous love of God. In verse 12, we see the glorious overflow of our Father's generosity and compassion as we move into what is oftentimes referred to as the golden rule. Look with me at verse 12. Verse 12 begins this way. So, right, so in light of the truth of verses 7 through 11, understanding and establishing the heart and the character, the goodness of God, Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, And so what I want us to do is I want us to seek to understand verse 12 another way. I'm about to give you two two sentences, okay? And I want you to process these things. If you're a note taker, write these things down because I think that helps us to understand, right? And, and respond appropriately to the love of God that we see unpacked in verses 7 through 11. If you really treasure your heavenly Father who meets all your needs by only giving you what is good for you, then you can live for others. Let me say that one more time. If you really treasure your heavenly father, now let's step away and let's say this, that a true treasuring of our heavenly father is empowered and enabled through the work and the transforming power of the gospel in our lives and in our hearts, right? That's the only way that we even find ourselves on solid footing as we approach verse 12, that we cannot do this, that there is one who could do this. One, who would who would do to others, not as they would do to him, because we know how that turned out, but what was desirable. In light of the sacrifice of Christ, though, we can say this, that as our hearts are made alive, as they are replaced, and we are empowered by the Spirit of God who now takes up residence, moves into the neighborhood of the hearts of God's people— then we can say that we can live for others, right? The call, a call towards humility and self-sacrifice, right? Consideration of other people, and we're going to talk more about this in just a moment. But let's build upon it, because I don't think that's the only thing. It's not only that we can live for others, but if we really treasure our Heavenly Father who meets our needs by only giving us what is good, then we will live for others. We, we can and we will. Does that make sense? Do we understand how those two work? Do we, do we understand how those two things relate together? That we can, right, that there is this enabling that takes place, but then there is also this desire that comes along with it, right? It's the difference between, um, the, you know, the little boy who, who raises his hand and says, hey, can I go to the bathroom? And the teacher's like, yeah, yeah, you can go to the bathroom, in which everybody's like, that's a lame Joke teacher, like you know what I was saying, right? Uh, And okay, well, may I and I will, yes, okay, yeah, absolutely, you may and now you will, you can go. There's a difference between can and will, the two things have to be married together, and that's what we see taking place in verse 12. The can live for others and the will live for others are brought together. We are, in light of what we saw in the Beatitudes. Right? We are poor in spirit, right? We're aware of our need. We're aware of our bankruptcy, and thus we ought not be a haughty people. We ought not be an arrogant people, but we ought to be a self aware people, a grateful people, a humble people, right? These attributes lead us into living for other people. That's why Jesus says here, man, you can live for others and you will live for others. This is a statement of massive weight and implication. Massive weight and implication. And it's one that is very easily and often twisted into something that Jesus did not say. And so let's play a little game for a moment called Jesus didn't say this. Okay, you guys ready for this? Make a note of this. This is also helpful. Perhaps we've heard such variations of verse 12 as this. Don't do to others... What you don't want them to do for you or to you. Does that make sense? The the way we might understand this is, do you enjoy other people belittling you? Okay, you don't? Well, then don't belittle other people. Do you see how that's different than what Jesus is saying here? Here's another one. Uh, If you can't say anything nice, well, then don't say anything at all, all right? If you can't say anything nice, then just keep your mouth shut, right? We've heard that, and these are all, like, super, super cute and beneficial, right, when it comes to teaching children not to throw trucks at people, right? Toy trucks, because, um, yeah, that would be terrifying if it were the other way around. (laughs) Only these things don't adequately communicate a gospel-empowered, gospel-initiated love response that the love of the father produces and commands john piper says it like this the problem with this kind of teaching the hey you know if you can't say anything nice don't say anything at all or don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you the problem is is that it can be obeyed by simply doing nothing right you can just do nothing and you can find yourself in a, in a posture in a position of obedience does that make sense That's not what Jesus is encouraging here. That's not what he's calling his people towards here. Jesus is, is much more demanding. And what he is saying in verse 12 requires action and creativity and ongoing love towards people in our lives. And so let's continue to unpack this a little bit. Jesus does not say Uh, Whatever someone does for you, you do that for them as well. Think about it like this. Uh, I know we, uh, my wife and I recently, well in the past couple years, we started sending out Christmas cards. Um, And every year we order a few extra because we always forget like certain people and then we get Christmas cards from them and we're like, oh. Gosh, we're on that type of relational level. We need to send them a Christmas card as well. It always comes like three days after Christmas, which is super embarrassing. But, hey, postal service, you know what I mean? Um, and so we just we, – we, we go on about it that way, right? Or uh, the awkward uh, – like, like – like, like wedding thing, wedding seasons. Weddings are confusing and kind of difficult, right? Especially like when you're a groomsman and your best friend's wedding and then like five years later you get married and you guys don't even talk anymore and you're like, do I extend the invite? I don't really know. That's what happened before and so do we continue on with that? Do you guys understand what I'm talking about here? Whatever someone does for you, you do that for them as well. This isn't what Jesus is talking about here. If you want someone to do something for you, you do it for them first, right? I'll be kind to you as, as, as far as you are kind to me in return, but if not, if kindness is extended and you don't return that back, well then like the kindness game is over and I'm moving on, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus doesn't limit this statement to certain groups to the exclusion of others, right? Christians to Christians, or Christians to non-Christians. He's not speaking of socioeconomic favoritism here. He's not talking about ethnic favoritism or generational favoritism or gender favoritism. He's not talking about geographic favoritism or party favoritism. No, the call of Christ here includes different neighborhoods and and difficult people. Right? The kid in the class that no one likes, and the spouse that you're struggling to understand, the wayward child, and the curmudgeon co worker, and the people who won't love you back. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 12. One commentator, F.F. Bruce, talks about the blessings of God that he extends. Which encourages, right, and makes sense of what we understand in verse 12. We can't understand verse 12 unless we first understand verses 7 through 11. If we don't understand the heart of God, if we don't understand the generosity of God, if we don't understand the compassion of God extended to sinners... In Christ, then there is absolutely no way that we can understand, let alone begin to apply what we see in verse 12, which is desirable from Jesus to his people. Listen to what F.F. Bruce has to say. God bestows his blessings without discrimination. We talk often about God's heart for the nation's. And how that ought to inform the way that we live our lives, our hearts for different people groups, right? This encourages, this is this encourages a diverse living for God's people. Why? Well, because God bestows his blessings without discrimination. And we are benefit, beneficiaries of that, right? We're beneficiaries of that. The followers of Jesus are children of God, and they should manifest the family likeness by doing good to all even those and this is the challenging part often maybe or maybe it's maybe it's the other way around even those who deserve the opposite Maybe the struggle for you is like loving and caring for people who are loving and caring for you because you want so bad to dislike them. Or maybe the struggle is for you, uh, loving those who are difficult to love, desiring what is ultimately good for them, pursuing after them, caring for them. We can say this, and we're going to talk more about this tonight if you find your way back here, but we were created To exist in relationship with one another in this way. This is the way that we were created to exist with one another. Right? Everything that we're seeing talked about, everything that we're seeing talked about here. Sin, however, as it does with everything, breaks these relationships and often these desires. And so, what do we do? Right? Because we say, listen, I understand the call. Like, I'm processing that. I see it. It's super explicit in verse 12. Like, I get that. But how do I begin to apply these principles to my life? How do I begin to live in light of these truths to which we say, hey, go back to verses 7 through 11. Right? Like, go back and observe the character of God. Consider it in light of this, this Advent season and the coming of Christ into his creation to redeem it. The gospel changes the way that we relate. Right? The gospel changes the way that we relate with God. The gospel changes the way that we relate with other people. Christ loves us at our most difficult to love. Right? He, he pursues us and now we are to, as God's people, live lavish generosity to other people in light of the lavish generosity that has been cast upon us in Christ. Verse 12, listen to this, verse 12 is a response to grace. It's a response to grace. It's not an effort to earn the love or favor of our Heavenly Father. Obedience to verse 12 is good and pleasing to God. And in Christ and through Christ, the Father, listen to this, produces a heart bent this direction through regeneration and faith. If you're sitting here and you're going, man, this is an absolute impossibility for me. There's no way that this has happened. There's no way that this is manifesting itself in my life. Again, let us step back and let's begin to ask some challenging questions about the condition of our hearts. It's not easy. right? It's not easy. But because of the work of faith and the extension of God's grace seen through Christ, because of his sacrifice upon the cross bearing all of the weight of our sin and our shame and our guilt because of the resurrection and the work of the spirit in our lives again we can begin living this way and listen here's the challenging part because as long as it's on the table it's pretty simple but we will begin living this way I've got a pair of sneakers in my home that I can lace up anytime and run I can run the ability is there right now the will on the other hand is a little bit more challenging but it's still there Right? And so we've got to see these two come together in light of what we see in verse 12. Jesus is calling people to live a certain way, a way that can only be acted out by those who daily, who daily experience the infinitely great grace, generosity, and love of God in their lives. Again, we can't, we can't live the golden rule. We can't treat others the way that we would like to be treated without experiencing the truth of verses 7 through 11. Right, Without deep confidence... That our Father will give us every good thing that we need, right? The reason that the golden rule fulfills the law and the prophets, as we see in verse 12, is that it assumes the love being discussed flows from faith. That it flows from faith in the work of Christ to rescue us, to ransom us by His blood, and to secure us. God's mercy relationship with him forever. If you're living, if you're living for others, flows from, from trusting in your Father, then what we see said here in verse 12 is that this kind of life fulfills all that the law and the prophets were aiming at. Christ fulfills the prophets. Christ fulfills the prophets. He displays this perfectly. Right? He, he displays this beautifully, and then he empowers his people by his love and through his spirit to live out the intent of what's being discussed in verse 12, which is at its core, at its root, at its heart, transformed relationship. Transformed relationship. And so, how do we respond? How do we respond this morning? Here's three ways that we can respond this morning. We see the love of God through the plan of redemption laid out in Scripture. We see the love of God through the plan of redemption laid out in Scripture. From Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation, we see this plan of God laid out. We see rescue for a people who are incapable of rescuing themselves. We see our rescue as we are incapable of rescuing ourselves. And so let us see this this story, right, of, 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 of love from God for his name and a people. Let us see Christ's sacrifice, Let's see the cross and the love and the kindness displayed there. And then let us be amazed. Why? Because the cross is amazing when we understand and we grasp the exchange that takes place there. Right? Christ's life for ours. In our meeting earlier this week, uh, we had a a handful of uh, of membership chats this past week. Uh, We had three. To? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, but we sat down with uh, with Matt and Kayla, myself, and Neil, um, and as we were just in conversation, do you remember the word? Okay, we were we were talking about um, substitution. We were talking about Christ's substitution in our place, right? And, and how He absorbs. The wrath of God for us, and and we as we were discussing, we we were we were reflecting on a, a, a certain commentary. I can't even remember who it was, but the guy who wrote it said this. He said that that the most beautiful word, the most beautiful word in Scripture is a Greek word, and it's ho hoper, hopere, and it means instead of, right, it means in our in our place and, and as we were chatting myself and Neil and Matt and Kayla we were just we we're just being encouraged together around the gospel of this idea of hope pair, god's love christ in our place so that we might truly begin to understand and rest in the sufficiency of the love of god right the world around us loses its luster right when we truly begin to understand and embrace and rest in the love, the love of God. And so we see the love of God. We see Christ's sacrifice. We see the cross as something that is amazing. And then, lastly, we strive toward gospel-enabled self-sacrifice. We strive towards gospel-enabled self Sacrifice, Confident that God will meet our needs in a way that enables us to treat others regardless of age or, or ethnicity or gender how we would like to be treated. If you experience God this way, then this life is obtainable. That's what we see Jesus saying through this passage. And so let's, let's fall back. Right, let's 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 fall back and let's spend these last few minutes together as a fellowship observing God's love. Right, that he would love a people to the point that he would pour out his wrath, do our rebellion upon the Son, so that we might receive his righteousness and then in turn stand before him. That's incredible. It's incredible. Let us see the love of God. Let us see Christ's sacrifice and the cross. And let us approach the table as we do every week. And then let us sing together as a fellowship, as a people that are desiring to grasp these realities. I'm under no illusion, right? That you might have come into this room today and you're going, listen, nobody else knows it, but I am wrestling. As, when it, as it relates to, to, to resting in the love of God, to remembering the love of God, to, to valuing the love of God, and then in turn responding in likeness to other people, right? It's a struggle for me at this moment. Man, we are together as God's people, taking the bread and taking the cup, remembering this display of love. Right, that, that reassures for us when we question and when we doubt that we do worship a God who loves His people and cares for His people and gives only good things to His people and works bad things together for good for His people. If you don't know this God, you've got to know Him. Like you've got to know this God. And so, I want to make myself available to to chat with you, but we're going to go to the table and we're going to do so with joyful and repentant hearts as we consider the love of God displayed upon the cross, the broken body of Jesus. And then we're going to sing a song. And it is my desire that as a fellowship, we might sing this song as people responding to the love of God. Man. Mark chapter 7. Matthew 7. The love that God gives. The love that God gives. Let's pray together.